Welcome to the African Defense Review Podcast. I'm Richard Stupart, and today on the show we'll be examining three different regions on the continent with various analysts. First up, and most forgotten by the international press, we turn our attention to Mali, where election results are shortly due in. Here to discuss what became of the security situation in the country and the likely path forward in the next few months is John Ashbourne, Sub-Saharan African Analyst for Business Monitor International. Welcome to the studio, John. Let's talk a bit about where Mali has gone over the last few months. The country was in the news a great deal during the period of the French intervention, but faded quite quickly from the world's view after the Islamist groups were ousted from the north. What's been going on since? Well, since then, the French-led force, which has some African components as well, but most of them are sort of for show, with the exception of Chad, has been quite successful militarily in terms of pushing back the Islamists and also the separatist groups that had conquered most of northern Mali out of the big cities and away into rural areas. So there's still a limited amount of fighting going on in terms of hunting down people who are trying to cross borders, but militarily it's quite safe. Politically, though, it was still very difficult because the government of Mali was an interim, very shaky coalition that was set up after a coup, and there was... uh, seen as a need to transition to a more legitimate and elected government, which will sort of put uh, an end to these institutional crisis that Mali's been going through for over a year. And that's the election which the government has uh, held on July 28th. And the results from that aren't in yet? Uh, the Ministry of Internal Administration or whatever has announced that about 30% of ballots have been cast. And from that, uh, Ibrahim, Ibrahim Boubacar uh, Keita. Uh, is leading very substantially, and actually that there might not be the need for a second round, which would be a surprise. And would this election now resolve some of the political instability that led to the original coup and made the armed forces vulnerable to the northern insurgency in the first place? It's possible. It will certainly be better than the current situation. There's a government that no one really supports and no one really likes, which has been there for a while. But in terms of actually changing the situation in Mali, the man who now seems very likely to win was the prime minister for six years uh, and was also the head of the National Assembly until relatively recently. All of the main candidates, with the exception of one, are people who held very high political offices in the previous government. So it's unlikely to lead to a really huge change or change in many ways in how people see politics, which has traditionally been, and this is one of the weaknesses of Mali, while they had quite fair elections, most of the candidates were seen as being all of the same uh, all of the same like, not really very much difference. Most people didn't bother to vote because they saw it as being a small clique of people who just ran against their friends. So it's unlikely to really change that kind of dynamic very much. And will it do anything to deal with the political grievances of groups in the north of the country, such as the Tuareg communities there? Well, the agreement that was signed in June, sorry, the agreement that was signed in July, which allowed the election to take place, uh, has opened up negotiations between the remaining Tuareg separatist groups and the central government. They've said they'll allow the election to take place across northern Mali, which is a very good sign. And they said that they will negotiate with whoever's elected as the next president of Mali to try and find a lasting solution institutionally and politically and culturally to the fact that most people in northern Mali don't really feel very connected to the Malian state and haven't supported it very much uh, in the past 60 years. So that will be beneficial, and it gives the new president a mandate to negotiate this, but it still is a very complicated negotiation. And... There have been solutions to the northern Malian question several times. They have peace deals, and it gets implemented for a few years, and then it falls apart again. So it does create a situation where progress can be made, but it doesn't guarantee that any progress will actually happen. And can you perhaps talk a little about the military landscape in the north? Which groups currently keep forces in the region? So there are currently two forces in northern Mali. The first one is a residual French force. The French had at a height around 5,000 soldiers in northern Mali. They've brought that down quite a bit now, and they've said that they'll keep 1,000 
um, for, the for the foreseeable future in Mali to help the government maintain stability. And that's the one that's going out and hunting for remaining uh, militants. The other one is a UN force, which is primarily from ECOWAS countries. Uh, Togo has a large brigade, Nigeria, countries like that. And that brigade has been quite helpful in organizing the election and in overseeing some sort of civilian management, but hasn't been doing very much fighting. The government of Chad also sent some soldiers, which did a lot of quite serious fighting. So Chad, Chad has a very professional, quite uh, well-regarded army, um, though in launching coups as much as killing foreigners. But they've been there. They've since withdrawn because they have suffered a lot of casualties and were asked to actually do everything. So. There is a remaining UN force, which is primarily African soldiers. They're still trying to increase that. Uh, so the goal was about 12,000 soldiers, which they haven't reached yet. Um, because the Malian army itself, at its height, had about 8,000 people. And given that Mali is, as gets mentioned a lot, about twice the size of France, 8,000 men who are very poorly trained, who have very little armed uh, weapons experience, isn't enough at all to kind of police this sort of large space. So the presence of those two other forces is very positive. And what has come of stories of the armed groups in the north having had ties to al-Qaeda, uh, which was so prevalent during the outset of, of fighting? Uh, was this a risk in the first place, and is it still so? Well, the key risk that the French saw, which Washington also saw, was that what would happen was that northern Mali could become a place where terrorist groups from all around the world could all come and gather and could train and so on. And there came, there are a lot of rumors came out that there were people from Pakistan even trying to move into northern Mali and so on. Some of those were probably true. Some of those obviously were spread by local governments who were trying to build up support for their own intervention. There were a few French citizens who were arrested moving into Mali, so there is some evidence that there were people from France who saw the opportunity to go and train there. Um, and one of the groups that was instrumental in, in conquering portions of northern Mali, which is uh, Al-Qaeda in the Islamic Maghreb, is an offshoot of an Algerian organization, sort of a rebranding, I guess. It, the links it actually has to Al-Qaeda in Pakistan or Afghanistan are probably very, very tenuous. Um, they've taken on that mantle, and it's a good way of getting themselves noticed. There are links to Algerian groups, and a lot of the fighters who were in northern Mali were from Algeria, some were even from northern Nigeria. So there were links abroad, but it was more or less people in West Africa who took advantage of the situation and moved in. The connections it had to quote-unquote global terrorism were probably pretty minimal. Is it safe to say that the core groups involved in the insurgency now have been comprehensively defeated? They seem to have been comprehensively defeated. They've been pushed out of the cities, certainly, and it's been actually quite easy to track down a lot of them in rural areas, given that Mali is perfectly flat. If you have a drone or a helicopter, you can see five people moving across it very easily. So there has been a lot of military success in that regard. But these groups are very hard to destroy because as they've been pushed out of Algeria by very hard-headed and heavy-handed policies there, they just move somewhere else. So a few people will move to somewhere in Mauritania or something, and the organization will in some way probably continue to exist. But it's unlikely that it will have the kind of organizational strength, and it certainly won't have the territory in which to organize itself and to really build up its capabilities that it had uh, in the eight months that it was controlling part of Mali. So it's certainly been weakened. It hasn't been destroyed. And without asking you to predict the future, what do you think will be the key questions to understanding events over the next few months in Mali? Well, the first and biggest question is, will the results of the election be accepted by the people who lose the election? Because what's been understood by everyone, including the candidates, 
is that this will be a very, very flawed election. Hundreds of thousands of people are being denied the right to vote, either because they've been displaced from their homes by the fighting and therefore never got their card. Other people just didn't get their card for administrative reasons. No one who reached the age uh, of majority since the year 2007 will be allowed to, 2009 will be allowed to vote because there hasn't been a census. So if you're under the age of 21, you are almost certainly not going to be able to vote in this election. That's a big fraction of the population. So if the results are quite close, it could, would be very easy to see some of the losing candidates uh, come together and say, this wasn't a fair election, we want to redo, or we don't accept this. And that would be very, very bad, because one of the only things that Mali really has going for right now is the hope that with the election, they can kind of put the political crisis behind them and then get to work on trying to solve the security problems that they have, which is no guarantee that they'll be able to do that, but at least they'll have uh, a capability of trying. But then the longer-term question is, northern Mali is very thinly populated. It's very poor, even compared to southern Mali. There are very weak institutional links to southern Mali. You have a situation where something like 91% of the population lives in southern Mali. So can you convince this sparsely populated part of the country, which is culturally distinct, which has just suffered very gravely from this war, to really accept a, a unified Malian state and their place in it? So what, what is the role of the Tuaregs in a unified Mali? And that's a question that hasn't been answered since 1960, and that's the question that they're going to have to come up with a solution to in the relatively near future, especially as you have something like 400,000 refugees moving back to their homes, that's going to require a great deal of administrative and state strength that will really need a political solution to that. And in solving those kinds of questions, what degree of support do you think Mali can expect from the international community? Well, I think the UN, and importantly France, has invested a lot in trying to make this work. So the French really did take the lead on this. And in some ways, the only way that the French can really have an exit strategy of getting their soldiers out of Mali and drawing a line under their involvement is if they can point to some kind of success and say, we have at this point had a successful election and we have some kind of peace negotiation that's led to a deal, we can leave. And they really will want to do that as soon as they can. So that puts some pressure on it. The UN is involved, which is very positive. It is worth noting, though, that there have been peace treaties in Mali and great accords to deal with the North several times, and it hasn't worked. This is, I think, the third or fourth rebellion that northern Mali has had against the southern Malian, Malian state. But there's involvement now from foreign powers, there's involvement from the United Nations and also from the United States in providing logistical support. So the Malian state has more allies in trying to make things work than it's ever had before. It probably is the best chance in some ways that it's ever had. Whether or not that works or not is still to be seen and depends a great deal on political decisions made in Bamako, but they do have uh, an opportunity now. During the Mali conflict, there were instances such as the attacks on the Aminas gas plant in Algeria. Have those risks since passed, or do they remain a concern for you know, companies and other groups doing business or getting involved in, in the areas around Mali? Well, I think there still is a relatively high risk to civilians, especially Western civilians, at oil installations. Uh, there was an attack at a uranium mine in Niger a few months ago. That sort of thing has been a concern, and that's been sometimes claimed by groups as being a revenge for the French involvement of some kind. But one thing that's important to understand is that there have been attacks on these sort of places on and off for the past 10 years. And so realistically, and very sadly, when companies decide to invest in an, an uh, uranium mine in Niger, they sort of understand that there's a relatively high risk that at some point during the next five years, someone is going to try and kidnap one of your workers. And so when you have even relatively large-scale attacks like the one in, uh, in Aminas in Algeria, that was a bit of a surprise, but anything lower than that is kind of accepted as a cost of doing business by most people. The Algerian attack was very surprising in the scale of it, and that sort of thing hasn't ever happened before. Probably it won't, that sort of scale of attack won't happen again uh, in the near future because most of these groups are very, 
are focusing on continuing to live and continuing to, to flee to somewhere where they can organize themselves again. Um, and also it's important, I think, to understand that that attack wasn't really a revenge attack for the French intervention in that it probably took months to plan and had been sort of uh, schemed up long before that. And finally, how far have these groups been trying to organize in neighboring countries since being forced to leave Mali? Is this a possible future danger of um, you know, satellite armed groups forming in, in Mali's neighbors? Well, they've been fleeing across all the borders that they can. Mauritania is probably one of the less stable countries. There's a lot of places there where the state has relatively little control. Algeria is probably in some ways the safest. The Algerian armed forces have a very tight grip uh, on maybe not the border itself, but on organizing anywhere within Algeria. The Algerian anti-terrorist forces are very professional, and as we saw in the gas uh, station attack, are also quite brutal in their willingness to use overwhelming force when something does sort itself out. Niger, though, could be quite unstable. They've had several terrorist attacks since the Malian intervention. Niger very publicly sent troops to Mali, which made the government very unpopular with some of the people. And also Niger has its own Tuareg population, which they've been much better than Mali at integrating society. The uh, Nigerian prime minister is Tuareg. So they're able, they've been so far able to kind of come to an agreement with their uh, Tuareg minority. But it's possible that that's a group that could be uh, disaffected in the future. And it's a fairly fragile country, socially and politically as it is. So that would be uh, a country that potentially could be at risk from these people seeking a, a new organizing ground. We turn our attention next to Egypt, where the Muslim Brotherhood continues to defy the Egyptian army's calls for a new election. On the ground in Cairo, we talk to journalist Jonathan Kalin. Welcome to the podcast, Jonathan. So tell me a little about the situation in Cairo at the moment. Sure. Well, you know, things in Cairo are still very tense at the moment. I mean, the city is, is trying to move forward. It's been, it's been you know, almost a month since uh, Morrissey was deposed. And, you know, it's sort of a, a double whammy for the city. Um, you know, it's Ramadan, so uh, you know, everything is sort of different anyway. Schedules are, are different. You know, people are fasting all day. And then you have um, the protests, which continue in, in places like uh, Rabba al-Adwiya, where uh, the Muslim Brotherhood is and the pro-Morsi supporters are, um, you know, championing for, for Morsi to be released and, and to be a part of the political process. So, um, you know, some of the things I've been covering are, you know, the ongoing protests in Rabba al-Adwiya, uh, in Tahrir a couple of days ago, uh, General Sisi of the military had called on supporters to come out and, and show their support for the military and show their support for, um, you know, uh, action against violence and terrorism, which you know, it inferred was towards um, some of the Muslim Brotherhood activities and sort of the ongoing crisis that that they are uh, causing. So, you know, like anywhere life life goes on. I mean, you know, parts of the city are fine, other parts are partially shut down from the protests. But um, you know, it, it it is still very tense, and and people are really waiting to see uh, what happens. You know, how the military reacts, how they plan to disperse the protesters, how they plan to. Uh, move forward with, with elections and sort of move on with the political and democratic process. And talking about public opinion towards the military, much of the media coverage has uh, tended to understand the situation in religious or sectarian terms, Islamists versus a secular military. How useful is this in understanding the support for the military, do you think? I think religious and sectarian divides don't come into play uh, when talking about the Egyptian military as much as perhaps uh, other militaries. You know, the military is one of the most trusted institutions in the country. Um, you know, they enjoy, from the last poll that I saw, about 94% support. I mean, their economic interests are uh, incredibly valuable to the country. You know, they do everything from manufacturing refrigerators to bathtubs to 
uh, vegetables. I mean, they they are really tied into the economy, and so you know, throughout recent history, they've they've been sort of apolitical. Um, you know, they seem to be focused on stability of the country and stability of the economy, and they they don't take sides. They they still enjoy widespread support, but I think they have to be very careful with how they how they use their power and how General Sisi reacts to the unfolding situation. Um, you know, people don't want to see another military dictatorship. Even if they do support the military, that is something that they are afraid of. I mean, they had, uh, you know, decades of rule under uh, Mubarak, and so, you know, they, they seem to want to avoid that, but they still have faith in the military and its ability to um, deliver results and, and hold elections. And what do you think are going to be some of the major issues determining whether there's an increase in violence in the coming weeks or whether the situation might become more stable? Right. I think, I think one of the major things that everybody is waiting on and sort of one of the causes of the, of the tense situation now is, you know, what the military decided to do in Rabah al where the Muslim Brotherhood protesters have been camped out for, for over 30 days now, or almost 30 days now. Um, you know, as we saw a couple nights ago, uh, you know, over 100 people were killed and reports of, of thousands of injured. Um, you know, and, and it really depends on how they handle that situation. You know, will they go in there and violently disperse them? Um, you know, will they go in there and arrest them? Uh, will they just let them be? Um, you know, I think everybody's keeping a very close eye on how they handle that situation. And, you know, whatever comes of that will certainly dictate uh, the path forward, you know? And, you know, another significant factor is, is you know, the Muslim Brotherhood has continued to reject the political process, calling this a military coup. Um, you know, if they choose not to engage in the political process going forward, if they continue to rebel against the situation, um, you know, they will then inherently be excluded from the democratic process going forward. Uh, many of their leaders are in jail. Morsi himself is under arrest, under charges for spying uh, for Hamas and, and other things. And so, you know, if they are not brought into the political fold, if they continue to refuse, then, um, you know, they can certainly be a point of contention and, and conflict in the in the days, weeks, months, years to come. Um, so I think those are some of the, the, the biggest factors that will influence how things develop over the coming weeks is, you know, really how the military handles with the protesters in Rabah al and and if the Muslim Brotherhood chooses to uh, start engaging politically instead of simply taking to the streets. And talking quickly about the violence in places like Rabat, where there were reports that the military were behind uh, much of the killing that happened there, to what extent do you feel the violence is being strategically orchestrated versus perhaps being a more disorganized or grassroots phenomenon? Right. Um, I, I mean, I think in, in there's conspiracy sp uh, theories abound. Um, you know, many people say that the Muslim Brotherhood is shooting their own people to try and drum up support from international media and international uh, organizations. Um, you know, on the other side, there's footage uh, clearly showing military and police shooting at, at citizens. That's undebatable. Um, you know, many of the injuries that I witnessed at the field hospital in Rabah al on Saturday after the, uh, you know, after the attack um, showed that many were shot uh, you know, in the head, that they were shot uh, by snipers from above, and human rights watches come out with a report stating that, you know, that it seemed the military or police had a shoot-to-kill uh, agenda. And so, you know, it's it's difficult to say. I mean, they're conducting these operations at night. Um, you know, it's hard to say if it's, you know, perhaps uh, Muslim Brotherhood shooting each other to raise support. Um, there's definitely military uh, involvement, definitely military bullets. To what extent, I'm not sure. Um, you know, and, and, and so that's just in Cairo. I mean, around Egypt, there's this instability in Sinai, there's instability in Alexandria, and I don't know too much about those situations, as I've only been covering Cairo, but, yeah. 
you know, it's, it's very difficult to say if that's orchestrated, if it's a few individual people, um, you know, uh, causing violence, if it's people taking advantage of the situation, which I know some are doing in places like Alexandria. Um, so it's, it's very difficult to say. Um, you know, I think it's a lot of different things happening at once. And, uh, you know, the media is, uh, people are reporting that the media is very biased and that some are covering certain aspects, some are covering others. And so, uh, the clear truth is is something that's difficult to discern and is still um, from a situation like this, especially it's, you know how, how volatile it is and how it's sort of shifting by the day. Um, you know there was another report recently of eleven bodies that were found in Rabat Aladuia um, that were supported reportedly to have been uh, showing signs of torture, and so you know people are accusing the Muslim Brotherhood of uh, torturing people. I don't know exactly who, um, but so I think it's coming from from all sides at the moment. Talking then finally about media coverage of the situation, particularly the international media, do you think there are any key dynamics that have been missed or misreported by the mainstream media coverage of events so far? Well, I think, you know, the sentiment on the ground is that there is a lot of uh, widespread anger in international media here and also local media. Um, you know, uh, an example is a couple, was it about two weeks ago, um, you know, Al Jazeera's bureau chief was booed out of a military press conference for their unfair coverage. Um, people believe that you know, they are, are, are sympathizing with the Muslim Brotherhood that, you know, because of funding links to Qatar and, and such things that, you know, they are biased. Uh, I've seen signs against CNN, BBC, Al Jazeera. I mean, there's a lot of anger and angst against international media for the way that they're covering this. And I think it, um, you know, everybody is sort of uh, using the international media as, in some cases, a scapegoat. I mean, in some cases, they have valid points, um, you know, that maybe they're covering one side too much, that, you know, they're covering... Uh, you know, millions of protesters in Tahrir, but they're not covering, you know, the, the you know, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands who have been camped out in Rabat Al-Adria for 30 days. So I think, you know, it's, it is a, a rapidly changing situation. It is a tense situation. And I think that, um, you know, the sentiment against the international media and, and local media for sort of bias and coverage is, is definitely there. Um, but I think at the same time, uh, you know, it is a very... Uh, how do you put it? I mean, it's 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 hard to tell, um, you know, exactly exactly where the truth lies because uh, you know I follow Twitter a lot, and so you know you get people blasting incredibly inflated numbers uh, on Twitter, and everybody's trying to push their agenda and you know hashtag you know tell CNN and tell BBC and tell Al Jazeera. So um, you know it's it's really up to on the ground reporting to to decide some of the stuff. I mean, it has taken a lot of citizen media, a lot of the videos, a lot of the um, photographs, a lot of the images coming out from, you know, the attacks, such as the one last Friday, uh, um, you know, are coming from citizen media, so how trusted can they be? I know that, you know, uh, weeks ago that uh, the Muslim Brotherhood tried to use images of, of uh, dead children from Syria to drum up support for their cause, and then they were called out on that. So, you know, it, it's sort of, it, it, it's chaotic. Um, and I think the international media is trying to distill and figure out what's exactly happening. And, you know, to some extent they're doing a good job. To some extent they think they could, they could certainly do a better job. Um, but, you know, everybody, every source has its, has its bias here. And every, uh, every individual on the street seems to have their, their agenda. Thanks very much for your time and best of luck for the rest of your stay in Cairo. My pleasure. Thank you so much, Richard. Finally, we move south to the Democratic Republic of Congo, where the much-anticipated Force Intervention Brigade is currently deploying with a far more direct mandate for engagement than any UN mission has enjoyed so far. On the line from Switzerland, we're talking to Makeda Fellow and Congo analyst Christoph Vogel. Welcome, Chris. 
So the first question I wanted to ask you was, looking at MONUSCO's recent announcement of the security zone around Goma ahead of the pending deployment of the Force Intervention Brigade, what do you think this means for MONUSCO to be taking a more aggressive stance towards securing the area around Goma? Well, first of all, um, the, the security zone, or well, that's the way they call it, they, they will set up from today, is a very limited zone. I mean, it only goes a couple of kilometers around the city of Goma, and I think the most remote point will be Sake in the west of Goma. So um, it doesn't necessarily mean that um, by introducing or by setting up this zone, the um, offensive action of Monisco. I mean, it's a, as I said, it's a quite limited area. It's not really sure if and and how many groups are are um, are in that zone. I mean, it could be that um, some M33 positions north of Goma are are touched by that zone, but um, it's quite unclear after the recent clashes to 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 know that. And um, so I think it's basically it's basically a political move at first to to, to show um, the conflict actors but also the outside world that um, Monisco is actually doing something. But it doesn't necessarily have to result in in, in, in um, any kind of skirmish or, or, or something like that. And what, if anything, would be the role of the Force Intervention Brigade in the security zone? Or is this primarily an initiative of the core Monusco force? Yeah, well, even that's pretty unclear for now. I mean, the, the official statement of MONISCO says that within that security zone, there will be um, parts of or units of the North Kivu Brigade, uh, which is a part of the standard MONISCO force, um, will be deployed alongside the um, elements of the Force Intervention Brigade. There is no, um, no clear indication so far um, how the tasks are going to be assigned. Um, it might be that um, the Force Intervention Brigade is kind of the the, the forerunning force that um, looks after after possibly hiding um, armed elements in that zone, with the North Kivu Brigade basically backing up or providing logistics. Um, the mandate clearly says that um, MONUSCO's standard tasks that have been defined in previous mandates have not been altered, so um, they will most probably be no no um, no part of MONUSCO that is going to engage in, in eventual combats besides the Force Intervention Brigade because that's the only part that got um, a specific mandate to, to engage in, in, in offensive action um, um, within the whole of MONUSCO. And is the Force Intervention Brigade currently ready to participate in an operation like this? Reports in their deployment indicated they were likely to only reach full strength, I think, around December sometime. Well, it, it's oh, as for now, it seems that it will be earlier than December. It was initially it was planned for for the end of May or early June, and well, it was quite quickly it was clear that it won't happen that early. Now it seems that um, that most of the brigade is is deployed on the ground. A, what I heard is that the Tanzanian and South African contingents are are ready to to, to start work with the contingent from Malawi being um, being retarded either because of some troops are still missing but also maybe some equipment. So that means now um, I would say the intervention brigade is uh, on the brink of, of being fully operational but maybe it would still take a week or two. 
And briefly returning to the issue of the FIDC and Monusco facing off against M23 Nyagoma, there have been reports that FIDC performance has been much better this time around. Have you heard anything in this regard? Um, it seems true. I mean, there has been a major, um, a major war of of, uh, of information, especially um, in the internet. Um, there have been disinformation campaigns on both the sides, um, through radio to Twitter as well. Um, I mean, overall, it seems that um, the the, the FDC units deployed. Um, now at the front lines are performing much better than um, than for instance in, in November when most of them were just running away. Um, that could that could have several possible reasons. I mean, um, certainly a reason is that M23 has had um, um, infights in in February and um, when the Makenga faction was fighting against the the, the, the part or yeah. controlled by Bosco Taganda. And so they have been relatively weak um, in the last month, trying to catch up, trying to recruit um, old old combatants from the from the Bosco side. They they try to re-educate, but also recruiting um, new new combatants. Um, but they have been quite busy with that, and it's unclear if they have managed to reach uh, their old strength. And given the territory they have to control, and also given signs like um, several incursions into their territory by FDLR militia and by by, um, by my, my groups, um, it, it's, it seems that they are weaker than before. And on the other side, it also seems that FARDC has deployed now um, the so-called um, commandos and, and the Republican guards on the front lines, which are certainly among the most performant uh, units in the, in the Congolese army. And um, for sure, they, they have been receiving um, Monisco logistics support. Um, but in the end, I mean, I would say FARDC has a has a temporary advantage in, in the during the last couple of weeks, but um, we don't we don't really know at this point if how long it will last and how it will develop in the next couple of weeks. Is there any clarity on how the front line has been shifting between FARDC and M twenty three over the last few weeks? There have been some some indications that FARDC has been able to to retake uh, several positions around. Um, around Munigi, around Mutaho, and up to the southern parts of, of Kibati, um, which is, um, if I'm not mistaken, it must be around 10, 12 kilometers north of Goma, maximum. Um, although, I mean, the, the front line has been shifting. I mean, um, during the, the, the week of heavy fighting, uh, 10 days ago, um, there have been more reports on FARDC advancing than, than the other way around. But um, information on the ground is still scarce. There have been a few journalists around, but there has also been a massive campaign of, of information, counter-information from both sides. And returning to the issue of the newly established security zone, to what degree does Monusco have the capacity to enforce a weapons-free zone like this, do you think? Well, I think for the security zone that has been designated today, Monusco should definitely have the capacity to to, um, to hold it. Uh, I mean, it's, it's an area of... Uh, I think it's, I don't have the map right in front of me, but it should be an area of, of 15 to 20 kilometers um, from um, west to east and and 10, maximum 15 kilometers from north to south, um, which is a relatively small territory. And with the, the backup of the North Kivu Brigade, um, 
who will not engage in fighting but will be there to, to hold and to, to back up. Um, and in addition to 3,000 or almost 3,000 because um, the Malarians don't seem to be here in, in full force um, yet, um, it, sh it should be possible. The, the big challenge for, for MONUSCO and for the Intervention Brigade will be as soon as they have to control a larger area, as soon as they have to move uh, more away from Goma in order to, to um, well, let's say, um, hunt down um, other, other rebel groups that are, that are far away. The Monusco announcement earlier this week also signaled that they were open to the idea of expanding the security zone or establishing new ones like it going forward. Do you think this could be an indication that there may be a strategy of doing so in the future, gradually expanding the weapons-free area from Goma outwards, perhaps? Yeah, it definitely it definitely sounds like that because um, given the the numbers and also the the, the available equipment, um, especially in terms of uh, um, helicopters and other aircraft for transport and for um, for um, for attacks, also from from the air, um, it's quite unrealistic to have um, to have a, a big one big operation. That's pretty impossible if you if you see the topography in North and South Kivu, where there are other other groups also um, that should be affected by the intervention brigade at some point of time. Um, so it could be that they they are going to pursue that strategy. However, this bears, of course, the danger of politicization because. Um, um, I mean, now with the with the security zone as it stands from today, it's quite clear that the first the first objective of Monusco or of the brigade is going to be M23, and um, I'm pretty sure that M23 and maybe even Rwanda. I mean, they have been quite cautious in the last uh, weeks and months, but that they will try to 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 complain about this fact. In terms of the politics of the area, how do you see the Force Intervention Brigade fitting into the politics of local actors? Monusco hasn't always had the best relationship with local communities, and there's questions as to how the Force Intervention Brigade might be received in light of that. Yeah, well, I have been... Um, it's almost two months ago, but it was at a time where the brigade was uh, was already decided upon. I've been talking to a lot of different um, people on the ground, both in North and South Kivu, both in cities, but also in more remote villages. And the answers have been rather diverse and rather interesting. But maybe to sum, sum it up, it was, it was more of a general skepticism against MONUSCO, not really a kind of hostile... Um, point of view, but more skeptical point of view. But on the other side, specifically on the brigade, people were were rather positive. There were there were certainly more people um, telling me, well, we we really need this brigade to to um, to get rid of uh, of all the rebel groups. And but the problem is, if the brigade doesn't deliver, um, it's it can be can be really quick that this kind of, of general opinion switches and they're already, I mean, given the late deployment, uh, the brigade was announced for, for much earlier than now, there are already voices saying, well, the brigade is just another, um, another kind of lip service by, by the United Nations. Is there a precedent for something like the Force Intervention Brigade, either in Monusco's previous operations or in other UN deployments? I mean, there has been, um, in 2003 four there has been the uh, Operation Artemis, which was a, a EU mission, French-led yeah. EU mission, with, uh, with the UN Security Council mandate um, that allowed for the Artemis troops to, um, to sort of clean up around Bunia in Ituri. And um, 
which worked for a limited time and for a limited area, it worked rather well. Um, also, given the the French approach to to heavily deploy and and, and quickly um, quickly fulfill their their tasks, then well, there has been. I think in the Sierra Leonean civil war there has been an intervention of the British that could be comparable in terms of offensive offensive peacekeeping or peace enforcement. And and then of course there is the current case of Mali where um, there is a, um, the, the mandate of, of MINUSMA that includes the, the, um, the so-called parallel force which won't be part of the MINUSMA mission but be a, a parallel force that also has um, some specific um, aims given by the UN Security Council and again is led by, by the French without blue helmets. And looking at some of the comments from humanitarian actors ahead of the Force Intervention Brigade being deployed, MSF, for example, is on record as saying they're concerned about being targeted as um, associated with the UN forces. Do you think this is a credible concern? Well, that, I mean, it depends on, on, on each and every armed group. I mean, in the Congo, most armed groups have quite diverse um, philosophies and, and historical foundations and also ways how to interact with humanitarians. I mean, there is... Uh, there have been many concerns voiced. There was a coalition of NGOs coming up with the issue um, already two months ago. Then there was um, the open letter of MSF, and recently also Refugees International um, came up with some similar concern. And I mean, in the light of today's announcement of today's Monusco communique, that was where from the political leadership of Monusco, it was the the humanitarian coordinator, Mr. Sumare, who is uh, currently the acting um, special representative until the new special representative is going to arrive. Um, that's certainly a very, very interesting example because, I mean, if the humanitarian coordinator, who is more or less responsible for, for, um, for streamlining and for representing all humanitarian actors uh, in the Congo, if he says, or if he's the one who says that um, the brigade is now going to, to, to deploy and there will be an, uh, um, a countdown for armed groups uh, to, to disarm, then there is a, a de facto blurring. Um, but, well, we have to see how, how armed groups react. And how do you feel actions like the establishment of the security zone and the arrival of the Force Intervention Brigade might play into the peace talks currently happening in Kampala? Well, the, those, uh, the so-called Kampala talks um, have been reaching a dead end uh, in, in the last weeks or almost month. Um, that's that's a question that, um, in my personal view, hasn't hasn't sufficiently been addressed by 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 the UN, but also maybe by actors such as Mary Robinson. I mean, there has always been that emphasis that um, that at least. Um, at least a public emphasis to, to seek for a political solution, which which is absolutely necessary because there is actually no military solution to, to this whole problem. There might be a military part, if at all. But if if you look at what happened on the ground, then you have um, a new Monisco force commander who has employed very stark, um, almost aggressive rhetorics, um, especially... Um, using the, 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 the upcoming brigade, um, while 
others have been emphasizing the the 11 plus 4 framework agreement um, that was signed in February in Addis Ababa. Um, they have emphasized the Kampala talks, and but so far there has been little little public argumentation um, about how all this should fit together, and and I suspect that um, that there is no single coherent strategy. I think given the given the the difficulties on the ground to solve the, the problems, I think that especially the international side and the United Nations are just moving moving forward with some sort of trial and error. Jumping back again to the issue of the Force Intervention Brigade, how well resourced are they likely to be compared to groups like the FADC and the MONUSCO Main Force, for example, who occasionally have been criticized for being under resourced in the tasks required of them? Well, they're going to have those uh, 3,069 um, troops um, from South Africa, Tanzania, and Malawi. Um, they will be regrouped in three battalions of infantry and then um, a company of special forces, a company of artillery, and they'll have, um, as far as I know, I don't know numbers, but they will have at least enough vehicles and, and also a couple of, of tanks, I guess, although I'm not sure to which extent they will be able to use tanks, um, maybe around Goma, but otherwise it can be difficult. And, and they will also have aircraft support. I mean, they have, will have a limited number of, uh, of, of helicopter and, and aircraft transport uh, facilities, and they will have, well, a very limited number of attack helicopters. Um, I mean, that's, that's already something. I mean, especially even one attack helicopter, if, if, if well equipped and, and well used, it can, be, it can make a huge difference uh, in a battle. But overall, and, and given the, the multiple challenges and, 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 and the multiplicity of groups um, in, in the Kibus, um, I still doubt that the equipment of the Intervention Brigade will be completely sufficient. And then one final question without asking for a prediction of what will happen in the next month or two. What do you feel are key dynamics to watch in the situation in the near future? Well, I think one important thing to watch is certainly um, the government army. Um, I mean, they have performed or they seem to have performed uh, rather well, well military, although, I mean, there, there has been the, the stories of... of, um, of Desecrating uh, M23 corpses, which which is of course a huge blast and, and a complete breach of international humanitarian law, and there should there should probably also be some sort of some sort of um, further analysis of that, and and the responsible people should definitely be taken in, in custody and tried by the Congolese government, and. Um, but but it's quite interesting what happens uh, in the frame of RDC. Um, although there is also there is a couple of rumors that at the higher echelons of um, of, of the army there is there is still divergent opinions um, and divergent also political philosophies. Uh, it seems that there are still people rather friendly towards M twenty three somewhere in the in command positions. And it seems there are also a couple of hardliners who would, um, um, would if they could, if they would immediately try to continue the offensive. So there are a lot of, of forces and streams within FRDC that might be um, contradictory. Then, of course, it will be interesting to see how, um, how M23 develops. 
if they manage to to come up again with a with a very strong fighting force that um, that counters uh, FARDC, it will certainly be interesting what happens around all the smaller armed groups. I mean, there have been some of them aligning to FARDC, some of them willing to disarm in order to to support a joint um, a joint approach against the M twenty three that are of course by many. Um, Perceived as as um, as invaders, although most of M twenty three are Congolese, um, and then it will also be interesting to go towards the south because I mean, for the whole time being, since the emergence of M twenty three, many parts of South Kivu and also many parts of uh, Masisi and Walikale territories have been have been pretty underreported, and especially the phenomenon of Raimutumbuki in South Kivu. Um, is the danger of um, well a really big humanitarian problem. I mean, it already is, but um, but given given the, the the lack of of government um, responsiveness to needs of the people in remote areas in South Kivu, they they might have a fertile ground to 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 grow to grow further as a either decentralized or maybe at some point even more coordinated movement. And then, of course, we have seen in the last three or four weeks that even uh, in the so-called Grand Nord towards uh, Ituri, there is, of course, there is a lot of um, smaller Maimai militias, but especially the threat of ADF Nalu, um, which remains one of the most mysterious rebel groups in the Congo. Um, there is there is little known about this group, so so I think that would be the the most interesting points to watch, and of course, also to see how the, the regional international engagement develops in terms of what is uh, the UN Security Council doing, what is uh, ICGLR doing, for instance. Great. Thanks for your time. We're also fortunate enough to have a connection to Joseph K, currently based in Goma, to tell us more about the situation there at present. So, first off, how have things been in Goma over the last few weeks? Um, generally, in the centre of Goma over the last three weeks, it's been... Uh, it's been as it kind of usually is. Life, life continues. Things travel into the market from uh, from the country. Things travel over from from Rwanda. Uh, sort of jobs jobs carry on, and uh, and everything's fairly normal. Uh, the escalation in fighting in the last couple of weeks has meant that there are a lot more soldiers around. Um, and has meant that prices in the market for certain goods that come from uh, from Ruturu and from from sort of agricultural areas um, have gone up slightly, which puts a bit of a squeeze on on people. Mm. Uh, but in generally, generally within within the city, life is fairly fairly. And how is local sentiment towards the various actors at the moment, particularly the FDC and Manasco? Uh, there have been reports that the FDC in particular have become quite popular in recent days for um, the way in which they've conducted themselves in the battles against M23. Um, yes, no. Well, the, the the sort of amazing thing about uh, about the last couple of weeks is exactly how popular the FDC have been among um, among the population. Uh, it's yeah. It, the, the, the population is is 100% behind and has been 100% behind the FARDC um, as a result of the FARDC winning effectively um, and being a much stronger force than we've seen previously in, in, in other years. Um, 
and so certainly the, the yeah the population is behind is behind the FARDC, and in particular the the commander in charge of this so the operational commander in charge of uh, in charge of these part of uh, of the recent offensive with the M twenty three Colonel Mamadou um, is a very popular character here here in Goma. The feeling general feeling towards Monusco is varies. It's um, it sort of goes up and down. I mean, the, there is a, a latent kind of um, slight dislike, uh, I guess, uh, about the way that Monusco. I mean, it's, effectively, it's, it's foreigners. It's um, non non Congolese people uh, who are seen to be sort of uh, going around in, in big cars and not necessarily integrating um, with. The local population, or taking part, of, they sort of live a kind of a separate, a separate life. And there are there are expat bars, there are expat um, uh, restaurants, and, and and things like that. So it's a fairly divided kind of place already. Um, in addition, people have memories of Monusco not defending um, Goma at the end of uh, of two thousand and twelve when. Um, when the M23 took over, took the town over for, for around 10 days. Um, so there's a slight awkwardness to begin with, and there's, there's the memory of all of these soldiers standing around while the rebels came in anyway. Um, this last week, um, last Thursday, I think, saw, saw quite a lot of tension um, between Monusco and, and the population generally in, in Goma. As a result of um, more more or less, I mean, you can trace it to um, Ban Ki Moon's um, sort of de de declaring, um, or at least sort of coming out and publicly saying that uh, the FARDC must, um, or publicly condemning a couple of photographs that came out of individual FARDC soldiers. Um, Sort of abusing, abusing a dead uh, body of an M23 fighter, and so Ban Ki Moon. This kind of went round the round all the different news channels. Ban Ki Moon eventually, at the UN, picked up on it and condemned it. Um, so this, you could trace this to to the sort of anti, a more anti-Monusco feeling, as people were very, very much behind the FARDC. And perceived the, these statements as sort of, you know, some somehow putting a block on the FARDC or stopping the Congolese army in the eyes of the Congolese population from going up, going ahead, and you know, and, and taking M23 out and defending defending Goma. So it sort of bubbled, uh, simmered simmered over, and there were some protests in Goma, and there was some stoning of of Monusco cars. Um, but I think. I think my take on it generally is that yes, there is latent uh, some sort of latent dislike, um, not necessarily for political reasons. I think just in general, seeing people living for the inequality, in fact, that exists between the local population and Monusco um, staff. Plus, it's sort of it's a foreign force; it's foreign soldiers on Congolese land. So I think there's a latent thing there already. Um, but also, things are everything's a bit tense, um, and it just all boiled over with 
masses of crowds, sort of rumours flying around and people getting quite hot-headed um, about about the prospect of defeating the M23, of being proud and behind the FARDC and also having a slight bug, um, a bug sort of bugbear um, or gripe with, um, with, with, with Monusco. I think, um, I think the perception of Monusco could be complicated uh, by, by the announcement of the security zone and also by the way in which they might implement it. So basically the idea uh, is that within, I haven't actually measured it on a map, but it's, it's a sort of an area around Goma and Sake, a uh, town west of, um, of Goma. The idea is to have a, a court, a sort of an area um, in which the only armed actors uh, would, would be state actors. Sounds like something perfectly normal. Sounds like you know you, you have a country. The only people who are allowed to, to have arms or be or carry weapons um, would be the police and the army. Yeah. Um, so the the idea is to implement that uh, within this zone uh, under the the Monusco's sort of reason for it is saying that Goma is a very vulnerable place. There are uh, there's a big population here in Goma. Symbolically, it's also very important, and that it would not do to have Goma fall once more. Um, into rebel hands. This morning, in in, in a press or this afternoon, uh, in a press conference, um, it was expressed as um, as the joint as a joint Monusco mission, uh, sort of a thing that the the, the whole UN um, stabilization mission here in the Congo is is doing together. Um, now, there has been, over the last couple of months, the deployment of a, an international brigade, uh, sorry, an intervention brigade, called the, the, FI, the FIB, the Inter- Intervention Brigade, um, which it has a mandate, a specific mandate from the UN, under Resolution 2098, um, to actively pursue rebel um, movements, armed rebel Groups within the DRC. So, this recent security cordon, the UN say after 48 hours, so tomorrow afternoon, they will enforce um, this. this sort of no, nobody other than the police and the National Army possessing weapons within within that area. It remains to be seen exactly how they will, will enforce it. Um, there are not it has to be said also there are not so many there are not so many kind of armed um, elements i guess within within the area that they that they have singled out at the moment they've actually put the line behind the front line of the FARDC so it's all government controlled area this is not uh, they they're not going to be going out into any M23 area to to disarm rebels under under the, this current current plan, which it has also said could be exp- extended in the future to a larger zone or zones in other in other areas, uh, but there were, there were there was news flying around this morning certainly on Twitter and some of the headlines on uh, the BBC news service for example, suggesting that this was an ultimatum that the UN had offered to the M23 that they had 48 hours to disarm. Um, that's not that's not the case. Um, any M23 elements within that area, of which there are none, um, 
which would would have, would be forced to disarm like anybody else. Um, the majority of the people I think who will be affected, who well, who will be caught with arms within this area, are in fact thieves and petty bandits um, and people that the population in general will probably be quite glad to see disarmed. Um, so from that side. The, the relation between the population and MONUSCO, um, that sort of tension might be eased, in fact, um, by the most recent, uh, by that most recent announcement, if they were to disarm bandits and, and, and people like that who do operate within, within that area, which would be interesting. Where it gets a little bit more complicated, and the reason I said it could possibly cause more friction, um, is that in addition to these sort of band, bandits being the majority of the people with uh, with weapons within that area, uh, so basic criminals, um, there is also there are also groups, sort of auto defence groups, that have sprung up um, in the areas where refugees have fled from the fighting between M23 and FARDC. So we're talking geographically about up towards Kenya, Virginia which is about 12 kilometers outside Goma, up on the northwest, towards the northwest, and it's where the front is right now between the FARDC and the M23. Um, that town of Kanya Ruchinia was, um, was occupied by M23 until um, several weeks ago, and the FARDC have pushed them back. Now, during that fighting, the whole town fled. Um, so they, they were all living there, kind of under, under sort of occupation, effectively, of the M23. Um, and during the fighting, they fled, and lots of refugees came here to, to Goma. Now, that meant that there were an awful lot of empty houses. There was a whole village abandoned. Um, and groups of sort of self-defense, Mai Mai, effectively, Mai Mai groups, in the sort of traditional sense of the, of the term, sprung up. Um, to protect those villages from, um, to, to protect the houses and the belongings and the property in, in those villages from fleeing M23 fighting, M fleeing M23 fighters, and also possible opportunistic um, FARDC National Army officers, or well, not necessarily officers, soldiers moving in. I've not had any confirmed reports of um, FARDC looting, neither have I had any confirmed reports of M23 looting. But it's fairly clear that it will happen. That it will have happened. The will have been. Um, the will have been meeting. So, so these groups have, have sprung up um, to to defend their property, um, and it might be that if Monusco and some some of these people are armed um, with with sort of Kalashnikovs and and others, um, and it might be that if Monusco moves in to disarm these groups also. Um, the population might see that as somehow hampering the FARDC's uh, fight against against the M23, and that might increase tensions. So in general, the move recently shouldn't really affect things very much, and in fact might be welcomed by a lot of people because it will cut down on bandits. Um, however, there's the possibility there that if the if the, the, the intervention brigade with MONUSCO target, in fact, some, some elements that are seen by the population as, as supporting the, the, the FARDC cause, um, then there might be a slight backlash. 
Is there any indication as to where MONUSCO is intending to use the Force Intervention Brigade first? Have they given any signs as to who the preferred targets might be? So far, the the only indication of where they're, where they're intending to use it is in the yesterday's announcement of this security zone. Right. Um, yeah, so that, that's all, all there is so far. Just talking again about FARDC performance in the recent battles against M23 outside of Goma, according to some reports, the performance of the army has been much improved thanks to a mix of better logistics and some of the generals who might have otherwise hampered the war effort currently being relocated to Kinshasa. Have you seen any evidence of this on the ground? Um, my impression, I, I wasn't, I've not been here um, previous times. Um, however, I have interacted quite a lot with, with FARDC soldiers in Goma in the past. And my impression is certainly that this time they are um, better trained, um, better equipped. Um, and, as, and as you said, uh, with all the reshuffling um, of sort of senior higher positions, it seems that the management also may very well be be a lot better. Um, I think, yeah, I think I think I think all those 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 three things are um, do, yeah, are playing are playing a role. I mean, to add to add some colour, um, yesterday I was up towards the front and completely unannounced, I came across one of one of the colonels and putting his men through drills of dismantling their their guns, cleaning them, and putting them back together. And this might seem like a perfectly normal thing for you know for, for, for a soldier to be doing, but it would it, it would surprise me if the, the forces that were here last year were as well trained and as well uh, um, sort of exercised. Um, I have a feeling that the the, the, the management is, is pretty good, um, and the training that the, the different groups have been through is also uh, is also quite strong. And that's it for this episode of the African Defence Review podcast. If you have any feedback or suggestions for us, please do just send us a mail to editor at africandefence.net or visit our website at www.africandefence.net. Thanks for listening.